So we went to see Star Wars yesterday, but I won't, I won't, uh, I won't inflict that on you. I want to talk about another movie. Um, um, this is a movie. Uh, how many of you have seen this movie? Russell Crowe, uh, Ron Howard film, A Beautiful Mind. So some of you have seen it. It won um, a bunch of Academy Awards, four Academy Awards. So there you go, including Best Picture. So I liked it too. Um, I need to put some of these down. Um, so, um, so there's the uh, publicity poster for it. So um, I liked it uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, at the time um, I, when I went to Princeton Seminary, um, uh, that was 2003, and the movie came out in 2001, and it had been shot at Princeton University, which is right across the street from Princeton Seminary. And so sometimes if you were making a shortcut to town or something like that, you could go across the university campus and you'd see uh, uh, an archway or something and say, hey, I've seen that in the movie. And now here I am, you know, it's like I'm in Hollywood almost, So, uh, print, but Princeton. So I like that part about it. I also like the fact that, that I'm kind of a science nerdy person and... Um, uh, this is a science kind of nerdy movie, or it appears to be. Uh, it's the kind of movie where the guy on the, in, in the poster has equations, um, not on a blackboard in this case, but on a window, but still equations. And I like equations in movies, especially if I don't have to solve them. So, um, so it was right up my alley. And um, uh, that's what I thought when I went to see the movie, but then I found out it was, it was not your typical movie about science nerds because it was a story of John Nash. And John Nash was a famous economist, and he invented something or discovered uh, a principle called Nash Equilibrium. And it's used in all kinds of things that I don't understand, but it's apparently a real profound um, economic insight. And he came up with it. And um, uh, and the, the, the thing about John Nash is not that he's a great economist or that he's really smart and can do equations on windows, but that he suffered from schizophrenia. And it uh, was undiagnosed for a long period in his life, and that's part of what the movie's about, is the process whereby it came to be diagnosed. But then also how, um, how it affected his life afterwards, first the treatment and then, and then after um, some years, how his life unfolded because of it. And so it's a very interesting movie because we see this, this kind of a, a process he goes through. And at the end, um, he is actually, a, toward, toward the latter part of his life, he's able to resume his his uh, job of teaching. So he's, he's able to teach economics and game theory and cool stuff like that to, uh, to students. And so we see that. And, um, uh, toward the very end of the movie, um, there's a scene, I'll show you a picture from the movie right here coming up. Yeah. So, um, the class is being let out and, uh, the kids are all going out, the kids, the students are all going out to, uh, wherever they're going next. And there's a man at the doorway who says, Professor Nash, can I speak with you? And, Instead of answering him, Nash um, uh, grabs one of the students, the woman there in red, and says, do you see that man there? And she says, yes, Professor Nash, he's there. And he says, okay. And then he turns, he lets the woman go, and he, um, he then turns to the man and have a, has a conversation. But he explains, I'm very reluctant to get into conversations with people with unfamiliar faces because I don't know if you're really there, Right? So he has to he has to figure out who this person is and if anybody else can also see him. Now the man tells him he's been nominated for the Nobel Prize and in fact he goes on to receive the Nobel Prize in economics. And there's something that I think is particularly instructive about that scene um, that I think we can apply to to ourselves as well. And the way I want to get at it is looking at the um, the Christmas story. 
Um, we we are in a series for Advent, as I mentioned before. We're gonna have we're gonna have Christmas per se this evening, but we're still in Advent. I'm wearing purple. We have purple all over. So um, so this is Advent, and Advent, as we've seen, is the season of preparation. Um, the idea is that Jesus came once in humility two thousand years ago, but he promised he would return again in glory. And so Advent is a time when we remember that we are to prepare for that. And so that's what we've been doing all during the course of Advent. And uh, preparation is intrinsically practical. You know, tonight we'll be a little more reverent, but um, uh, t- today we're really practical because because Jesus said kind of, you need to get yourselves sorted out. You need to, to figure out if you're ready to receive me when I come again. And if not, you may need to make some adjustments in your life. So... Um, we began a couple of weeks ago by looking at the question of of hope. And what we saw is that whether you're a religious person, whether you're a, a Jesus follower or not, it's a great thing to have hope. Uh, it's a great thing to have a hope, some better future that you can envision and orient your life around. That that's a good thing. For Christians, it's even better because because our hope is something that um, that is uh, connected to us by our faith in God. We believe that God is in charge of the future. And so by having a big hope, that basically stretches our faith. And we want to have a big faith. Jesus said that his disciples were were little faith. And we want to be big faith disciples. So it's a good thing to have a big hope. But we also talked about purpose. Purpose is where we claim our role in whatever it is we're hoping for. And again, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, whether you're still figuring out what you believe about Jesus, it's great to have a purpose in life. Um, uh, so, so it's a good thing to figure out what it is you want to do, uh, and, you know, what, what your role is in the thing you hope to see attained. So having a purpose is good. And then last week we talked about obedience, which is not as much fun, but, um, I heard a better way to describe it. You know, I wish I could go back and do a sermon do-over. But basically the idea is this. In the scriptures it says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if we know there's some things we want to do out that way, our purpose lies in that direction. There's probably also some things that intimidate us. And if we have an idea of obedience to God, then basically the biggest and most frightening thing out there is God. And we don't have to be worried about anything else as long as we're obedient to God. So if we put, um, if we put God behind us, kind of urging us forward, and our hope in front of us, then all the things that normally make us stop won't have any success. They won't get traction on us, and we'll actually be able to carry out our purpose. So that's kind of where we've come from. And today I want to talk about um, something else. And what I want to talk about is the magic word let's. And we're going to see it here in what the shepherds have to say. So let's go ahead and take a look at the scriptures. Um, uh, we begin um, this story by telling us how David has gone to Bethlehem because he's uh, of the lineage of David. And he travels there and he takes with him Mary. She's pregnant. And um, while they're there, the baby is born. And then there's a scene transition. Um, Luke transitions from Bethlehem, the the stable with the oxes lowing and you know, the drummer boys and all that kind of stuff. And um, he transitions out onto some hillside nearby um, where it says, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Now, as I mentioned to the children, shepherds in that society were probably very young and honestly, their family probably viewed them as more or less expendable. Um, you know, we read in the scriptures how David, the, the famous king of Israel, had begun his career, his public career, as a shepherd. 
And the reason for that was his dad could spare him. He had uh, seven other brothers, and dad needed them because there were useful things for them to do. But little runt David, I got nothing else for him to do. He might as well go look after the sheep. So it's not a glamorous job. Um, and in fact, when David went on to become king, we noticed that his children did not become shepherds. So it is not a great job. Um, it's, it's late shift work. If you've ever had late shift work, it's no fun. Um, you get disconnected from everybody else around you. So shift work is no fun, and shepherds have shift work. But it's worse than that because there's long periods of time where you're basically watching sheep eat grass. So it's incredibly boring, except for uh, the occasional moment where some predator comes in to steal a sheep or something, and then you've actually got some excitement, and maybe more than you wanted. Uh, David talks about lions and bears. I don't know if they still had those in the first century, but um, uh, earlier at the time of David they did. So it's it's long periods of boredom punctuated by intense excitement, um, either because a predator or maybe a rustler has come to steal the sheep. So it's not a great job, but the angels come to them, and they say, they say, um, uh, don't be afraid, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, if you're a Jew and you've just heard the word David in a sentence and somebody says Savior, you probably think somebody who will rescue Israel because that's what David did, right? He rescued Israel from the Philistines uh, back a thousand years earlier. And so we naturally kind of go there that somebody has finally arrived Who's the local threat? Well, we don't worry about the Philistines anymore, but we sure worry about these Romans. So finally, God's going to send that Savior who's going to rescue us from the Romans. But the angel doesn't quite say that. He says, this is good news for all people. And then as soon as he finishes, the angel is joined by a vast host of others. This is the heavenly host. The word the word is um, armies. It's actually, um, in, in the biblical language, it's stratias, and it's the same word we get our word strategy from. These are these are the militant forces of God that we heard about in that very disturbing passage at the beginning of our worship service today, uh, where it's talking about hurling rocks and blood and all that stuff. But what does this army say? Does this army talk about hurling rocks and blood and wine and all that stuff? No, this army says glory to God in highest heaven and peace. Not just peace here in Israel, God's favored country, but peace on the whole earth. To whom will this peace come? To those whom God is pleased. The angel is basically saying, I don't get it. I don't see a lot to be pleased with, but God loves you people. It just beats me, but there it is. There's no denying it. Peace on earth because God loves you. So the angels go to heaven and the shepherds say to each other, let's go. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that the Lord that, that has happened, that the Lord has told us about. And then they do. And they, they go and the rest of the story unfolds from there. But, you know, before we leave the shepherds, I think we should give them props because what they did was kind of, kind of bold. And it doesn't seem like it because we're so familiar with the story. But it, here, I want you to imagine instead, you're in the break room at work, okay? And suddenly an angel appears to you and says that a savior has been born just down the road. Okay, there's some other people in the break room with you. The angels disappear. What do you do? Do you even make eye contact? Or do you go, I'm going to wait until see if anybody else says they saw it before I say a word, right? Because I don't want to be where John Nash was getting treated with, you know, electroshock therapy or whatever. 
I don't want people to think I'm crazy. So I will not be the first person to admit I just had a full vaporous apparition appear in front of me. No thank you. But the angel, but the shepherds do. They say, hey, let's go see this thing that we just heard about. And then they say, um, uh, so, so that's one reason, that's one reason we can, we can be impressed with the shepherds. The other thing is that, is that they go, right? If you're in the break room and somebody says, hey, there's something exciting happening down the road, chances are, if not you, somebody in the room is going to say, yeah, but, but we got to get the proposal done before, before three o'clock because we've got to fax it to England or whatever, right? So, so, um, that's the reality is somebody's going to say, hey, we have a job here, okay? And we can worry about, uh, you know, newborn kings in Bethlehem after we punch out in the morning. In the meantime, let's stay focused on what's important, right? That's very common, and yet that's not what the shepherds do. And finally, this is, this is harder for us to access because, because this is not our reality. But what they did was treasonous. You know, so picture this. Instead of being in, you know, first century uh, Israel-Palestine, imagine instead this is North Korea, Okay. And some angels appear to some North Korean shepherds and says, hey, there's a, near, a new dear leader and it's not Kim Jong-un. Why don't you go to Pyongyang and check it out? Okay, if you're a North Korean, are you going to say, well, sure, let's do that? No, and King Herod was every bit as bad of a piece of work as Kim Jong-un. So we have to give the shepherds some props because they did. And the reason they did, the reason they did these things, the reason they went to... They went to Bethlehem to see this newborn king. Is I think the magical word, let's. Let's is a magical word, and here's why. Here's how I want to explain that. People are pretty amazing. People are absolutely amazing. In fact, um, if you think about it, people do the most amazing things. We go to the bottom of the ocean. We fly above the clouds. We've been to the moon. People are amazing. I read a statistic. Check this out. If you add up the weight of all of the animals that we have domesticated and add them to us and our dogs and cats, I guess, 98% of all mammals on earth are human or human um, domesticated animals. 98% of all the by weight. So counting the blue whales and, you know, uh, you know, the elephants out in the veldt, right? 98% of mammal life on earth is part of human civilization. That's how amazing we are, right? We are simply amazing. You can argue, well, there are dangers that come with that, but I mean, just stop and think about it. You live indoors, right? The, the two of the biggest causes of death in our society are, um, due to overeating and inactivity. There's all kinds of animals on this planet who don't have that problem, but we do. Humans are amazing. We've achieved amazing things. We build buildings you can see from space, all that kind of stuff. Why is that? How do we do that? How is it that humans can be so impressive? You know, I think naturally we gravitate toward our big brains, right? We've got these massive brains and we can think, we can think big things. Okay. Um, the days are hastening on. Is that a... <laughs> get, get cracking here. So we, we, We've got these big brains, and and the problem is, um, you know, we're smart enough to go to the moon, but we're really not that smart. I, w- I want to share some quotes with you. The first one, 
um, is from a guy named Vitali. He says this, the odds of a meltdown are once in 10,000 years. And that's Vitali, whatever his last name is, Skylar Yarv, right? Um, Vitali said that. He was the manager of the USSR's um, Ukrainian electrification ministry in 1986. He said it two months before the Chernobyl disaster. Okay. But, you know, it's not just bureaucrats. Uh, this next one is from Harry, uh, Harry Warner. He said, who wants to hear actors talk? In 1927, right? Why would you ever want to go to a talkie, right? So people make all kinds of, of, of bad decisions. Uh, there's a statistic. People did a study. When the doctors tell you they are uh, completely certain about a diagnosis, they're wrong 40% of the time. So think about that the next time you go to your doctor. <laughs> if, he, if he says he's not sure, that's probably a good sign. <laughs> okay, so so we, we've got these big brains, but we get things wrong all the time. And so um, there's a reason for that. And I want to just kind of very quickly sketch out some of the reasons. The, the reason is we're no good at this. The reason we get things wrong is we're not as smart as we think we are. There's a whole list of things. I'll go through this very quickly. Cognitive tunneling. That's when you seize on an idea and you can't let it go. It's when the doctor notices this one symptom and forgets all the others because he's kind of zeroed in on the one and isn't paying attention to the other signs that contradict it. Um, it's when a pilot starts looking at one dial and he spends too long thinking about it and loses his scan and misses misses some important information like the mountain coming up or whatever. So um, that's cognitive tunneling, and it happens. Um, and there's no fix for it. Affect heuristics. Affect heuristics is basically we all judge books by the cover. Let me give you an example. We've all seen this. If you're watching a political ad and candidate A is running against candidate B, we're going to start with the picture of candidate B. Is it going to be in color or black and white? The opponent is always pictured in black and white. And the reason is because it's less pleasant. And they are simply manipulating you. When they show you, and both sides do it, right? I mean, I've never seen a political ad where they don't do this. The candidates depict their opponents in black and white, and that's because of affect heuristics. They want you to think ill of the opponent. So they start by making them look bad. Okay, And yet at the same time, they haven't lied. That's what they look like in black and white. But... Our hero, candidate, you know, candidate A, the one you want to vote for, is in color. So that's affect heuristics. Confirmation bias. Let's suppose you've got your eye on a 4K flat screen TV, right? You want to see the, uh, the ultra high definition and you're thinking that would make a great Christmas present and Costco's still open. Between now and 4 p.m. or whenever they close, you're going to see all kinds of things that point you toward that UHD TV. There's going to be things, you're going to see an article in the paper that says, here's a family that was rescued from a fire because they were at the neighbor's house um, instead of their own house watching the 4K TV. If they'd been home, they could have been killed. But they were watching a 4K TV. That's confirmation bias. You see all kinds of signs that point you toward the thing you want to do. And motivated reasoning, that's why you have a snooze button on your alarm (laughs) clock, right? You say, well, look, if I just kind of hurry up later on in the morning, then I'll be able to make up for the five minutes. So I'll tell you what, snooze. And then you motivated reasoning some more. And then eventually you fall back asleep because the, the alarm clock quits. And then you don't have to reason at all until you wake up finally. So, so these are all things we do. These are things that, that are just kind of built into us. And study after study shows nobody is immune. Smart people, um, uh, educated people, 
uh, um, experts in fields, they all do this. Like I said, doctors are wrong 40% of the time when they're certain. So, what can we do? There's actually, there's actually one more thing. I love this. Um, if I tell you, let's suppose you, you, you want to do something. Let's suppose the doctor, uh, tells you like the doctor told me I needed to lose some weight. Okay. Uh, if I was in an MRI, MRI machine when the doctor told me that, the pain part of my brain would start lighting up. The, the, the parts of the, my brain that, that process, um, pain would start lighting up when the doctor told me an unpleasant fact. And then if the doctor said, um, you can wait until after Christmas, then the pleasure part of my brain would light up <laughs> because I got let off the hook. Because this is just, it's how we're wired. So what do we do with this? How, how can we get our act together? Remember, this is Advent. We're supposed to be getting our act together. We're supposed to be sorting ourselves out, preparing for the coming of the Lord. But we're terrible. We're terrible about this. Well, like I said, the answer is something that we see the shepherds doing. There's two, there's two, um, there's two, uh, French researchers. I hope I wrote their name down because I forgot. Yes, Sperber and Mercier. Who couldn't remember them? Sperber and Mercier, they came up with a model that they think describes the problem. They say that humans are not designed to reason alone. You know, you've seen the statue of the thinker, you know, right? He's missing his other half, that we're no good at thinking by ourselves. What we are is we're like somebody who's got a two-handed saw. And we can pull on one side. We're very good at reasoning why we need the 4K TV. But our spouse could come up with all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't. Right? So we need someone to pull on the other side of the saw. We just can't push. If you've ever tried to do that, it just doesn't work. And so these two researchers, Mercier and Sperber, they say that this is actually a model that explains how we managed to go to the moon and at the same time how we're so colossally dumb at the same time. And the answer is because we were never designed to figure these things out on our own. So what did the shepherds do? The shepherds said, let's. What did John Nash do? He said, this is an area of my life where I just don't trust what I see. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to enlist some help. And he grabs a student and says, do you see that person? So what do you do? You may not have schizophrenia, but you do need help. You've got a two-handed, a two-handed saw in your head, and you're going to find it's a lot easier to pull on it than it is to push. So get somebody else to pull on the other side. Find people who you can trust to tell you you're wrong, to pick your great idea apart. <laughs> Argue. You know, I don't think we have enough arguing in our society. I think what we've got is a lot of fighting. But we haven't <coughs> given people permission. We haven't said, you're actually engaged with me in a search for truth. We're together trying to find the right thing to do. So find people in your life that you can trust to actually pick your great ideas apart. So it's not a fight, it's just an argument. Now, that's, that's, uh, that's all true. Um, your brain is a two-handed saw, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a believer or not. But I want to conclude by talking specifically to religious people. You know, there are people in your life 
who need an argument. Maybe, maybe you're one who needs an argument, but we need people who will help us reason. And this is our calling. Jesus told us that we are to serve others. And so the next time you find yourself headed to an argument, instead of thinking of it as who's right and who's wrong, think of it as we are together engaged in a search for truth. Christians should be the best arguers in the world, not the worst. I think too often people see Christians as dogmatic, Bible-thumping, know-it-alls. And instead we should be viewed as conversation partners who can help people arrive at the truth. This is why I tell people you have to be in a small group because we need people in our lives that we can trust to tell us, no, you really shouldn't do that, or yeah, you really do need to do that. You need to go to Bethlehem because the baby's been born, whether it's dangerous or not, whether you're going to come back and find a pink slip or not because you really need to do this. We need people in our lives that we trust have our best motives. And so my advice to you is to be that person to the people around you and find people like that who can be that for you. Find a small group. Find people who can be arguers in your life because we all have a two-handed saw and we need someone else to pull the other side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our amazing brains that have gotten us to the moon, that have domesticated animals. We're all going to go home and we're going to worry more about overeating than, than being hungry. Lord, help us to use these brains well. Help us to, to pull and not try to do all the pushing by ourselves. Help us to be involved with people so that we can learn to trust them and they can trust us to be a good conversation partner who can who can have an argument and not a fight. We pray you'd help us to rebuild the image of the church, not as dogmatic, um, narrow-minded ideologues, but as people who you can trust as you search for the truth. We pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.